welcome everyone and welcome to uh, our first live recording of the Creative AI podcast brought to you by Sensilab. My name is Lizzie Crouch, I'm the engagement coordinator for Sensilab and I'm going to ask our panel to introduce themselves so that you know who they are. Starting on my left. Uh, my name's Seb, Seb Chan, I'm the CXO at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. We're, we're the Museum of Film, TV, Video Games in Federation Square. Uh, hi everyone, my name is John McCormack, I'm the director of Sensi Lab. I'm a media artist and researcher. Hello, uh, my name is Nina and I'm a PhD student at Sensi Lab, about a year into my degree at the moment. Well, welcome panel. So I will be kind of the moderator and facilitator for today and I'm going to ask our panel some questions and ask them to kind of bring some examples to, to the discussion. But just to give a little bit of context, AI and kind of AI in creative space has been a discussion that's been going on for a number of years. AI is increasingly a part of our everyday life. If you've got a Siri or Alexa, or if you use Google Maps to try and find the quickest way here today, things like that. And I guess we take that for granted sometimes and also we often don't question how these AI systems are set up. And so in the same way, we may not question how AI is being used in cultural spaces. So this gives us an excellent platform today to maybe deep dive into that. Um, there are a number of ways that cultural spaces, museums, galleries are already using AI. So whether it's uh, a chatbot to kind of explore some of their collections or the Smithsonian museums have famously kind of included humanoid-like uh, information robots at the entrances to their galleries. But uh, some of these um, AI systems maybe aren't meeting the expectations of some visitors and there's a lot more maybe that could be done in the future. And so that's what we're going to uh, deep dive into today. So to kind of kick things off, what I've asked the panel to do is maybe bring, uh, explain an example of something that they've seen recently that kind of piqued their interest, whether it was good or bad. So why don't I start with you, Seb? Is there a particular example that you'd like to share with us um, today? I guess I would... I'd like to say that every person who calls me up in the office with a product to sell, sell, sell me now pretends it has AI in it. Mm -hmm. And so there are so, so many examples of, of things that are not really AI that are described as AI that are in the back of house systems of museums anyway. Um, but most importantly for me, I think the most interesting stuff's occurring in the uh, creative space with GANs and the way that GANs are now being used to, to create new emergent works, which again, of course, has a huge history back in uh, machine art anyway and generative art practice, but that from uh, generative music to uh, generative visual art is, is quite exciting. The way museums use, use it though tends to be very um, immature and I guess there's a sort of AI literacy or a data, an algorithmic literacy challenge amongst curators and amongst museum staff. So I'm just gonna pick up on something really quickly then. So what, how would we define an AI for the purposes of this? Like there's several different kind of things that fall under that umbrella term. Maybe, John, you could maybe just give a bit of a, d a definition so we are, we're all on the same page here. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think as Seb rightly points out, everything's called AI these days, largely because as soon as you put the words AI in front of something, people are usually willing to give you a lot of money. And the reason is because there have been some advances largely in machine learning, which is a kind of subfield of AI. So the general program of AI 
which has been running for over half a century, was to try and create machines that had human-like intelligence. But what's changed is both the capacity of computers to do what they do, compute, and people's understanding of what intelligence is. So back in the 1950s and 1960s, when people started with this, intelligence was thought of as roughly correlated to something like IQ. And it was very rationalist, very, it was sort of people's rational ability to solve problems. And I think over the past um, 30 to 40 years, people have come to a new realisation about how complex intelligence is and how multifaceted it is. And so these days we're quite comfortable talking about things like emotional intelligence, about kinesthetic knowledge, the knowledge of our, that our bodies have about the world and the whole issue of embodiment. So it's become this much bigger kind of beast. That's, that's AI in total. Um, when most people think about AI in terms of popular culture and the popular notations of it, they're really talking about machine learning. So they're talking about stuff like Seb mentioned, like GANs, Generative Adversarial Networks, or things like CNNs, Convolutional Neural Networks, which are basically computer model, very simplified computer models of how brains work. It's wrong to think of them as brains. It's wrong to think that they actually work like the human brain does. But parts of them are kind of modelled on a, a, a neuronal or a neuron analogy, so lots of neurons connected together that learn by being exposed to certain patterns in data and they learn the patterns in that data. Thank you. So I think also what Seb mentioned was that there has been some, some of the most interesting kind of work in this area has actually been in generative art and, and kind of using AI in the arts. Um, Nina, maybe do you want to give your example of what you've seen that interests you in terms of an AI being used in a gallery space? Yeah, well, I mean, I, th I thought that was kind of an interesting comment by you, actually, because, like, I think my opinion coming from, like, looking at the field of just, like, AI art, maybe more from more of a technical perspective, I, and also just, like, my kind of artistic opinion about it is that, like, a lot of the... GANs especially, but just like the whole kind of like generative thing where the, there's a lot of hype around it and that's also kind of like people who don't know much about the field kind of see it as the AI is the artist and that's kind of like the big, I mean it's like, I feel like that's kind of dominating the space right now in that field. And I kind of feel like that to me was like lacking a little bit. I don't know, like so, I mean, GANs became popular, like what, you know, really popular, they got sold in the, that auction for like $400,000. <laughs> Yeah, and that was kind of like a lot of hype around that. But I feel like even just like GANs generating artwork, it's not really like the, the GAN or the AI that's the artist. It's really just all about the training set. And that kind of concept is, is just kind of like the same concept every time. So I feel like I, I personally struggle with that type of AI art. And I feel like there's a lot of different, you know, ways you can approach art and AI. You know, maybe even like criticizing, you know, AI processes or biases and stuff like that that are like a lot more interesting. Yeah, I was just going to talk more, like a bit more about that. There was like a really interesting artwork. It's kind of, I guess, meant to be like a criticism a little bit of AI and like surveillance and the future of AI. But this was like an artwork, I think, at Ars Electronica called Fly AI. And they basically had this system where there was a bunch of flies living in this like dome. And there was like a camera with computer vision that was detecting basically whether or not the objects detected were flies. And if the objects were detected like by this you know, neural network as flies, then, then the system would basically give the flies food and nutrients and water and stuff to keep them alive. But if, they, like, if the um, neural network basically was wrong with this detection, then they would like, start to die. <laughs> That's like an interesting installation piece, right? 
Yeah, so that's a kind of a different and unusual way, rather than just a visual output, I guess, of, of AI yeah. in, in artworks. John or, or Seb, do you have an example maybe of how AI has been used in, in the cultural sector that's maybe uh, not an artwork itself? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's some interesting work going on around forgery detection in the visual arts. So the notion of using uh, trained training sets of known artists to then train and then uh, feed it other images of art that is pretending or may maybe by that same artist to see whether it can be flagged as potentially more like a forgery or not. There's also a lot of stuff going on um, back of house. So, so most of the stuff that I see or, or get tried to be sold to me is around visitor data. So uh, museums have become, before the AI sales pitch there, it was the big kind of data sales pitch. And that was all about uh, museums collecting data about their visitors, storing them in data warehouses, which were actually really just their CRM systems, and then uh, doing predictive pattern analysis on uh, that uh, data. So predicting whether visitors are more likely to come to exhibitions, modelling, t- ticket pricing, all of those sorts of things. But also now also the computer vision that is now built into the CCTV sy- systems that we are now being sold to install. So like in this uni- university room, there will be a CCTV camera for security. Those images will fed back to a kind of database and probably the university, uh, I know some uni- universities are actually tracking students by their presence in particular rooms to create building analytics, which then allows, apparent kind of allows the planners to plan uh, the layouts of our civic spaces better. And of course, that's a very deterministic view of how humans move, move, move through space. But that has affected the museum space in a pretty deep way. Museum exhibit designers have been obsessed about visitor flows for decades, and these are new technologies for that. But I'd question whether, whether it's AI that's helping us or whether that's actually just generating more noise, more noise for us. The other side, of course, is in the collection side. So a lot of work going into um, collections and using computer vision to describe collections. So Museum collections are notoriously poorly written about by the staff who manage manage, um, those collections, mostly because of the scale of collections. So there's been a lot of work. The Smithsonian's been doing a bunch of work. Most of the museums in Australia have. The larger larger museums have too. The libraries have as well. Around basic, basically machine cataloguing or machine-enhanced cataloguing. And in the library space, you're seeing a lot of growing awareness that this is, in fact, the automation of humans out of the library service practice. So that also is creating uh, labour issues that are also incredibly uh, valid because, of course, these machines and these um, systems need humans to train them. I think our sector is not coming at this in a necessarily uh, sensible way all the time. You know, I think we see the promise and we see the promise as being much, much closer than it really is. We're seeing the things that are 20 years away being 20 months away, which is, you know, <laughs> relatively common, I guess, right? And, you know. I think that's typical of the tech industry. I think it's so. totally yeah. always <laughs> promises a lot more before it can actually deliver it totally. Yeah, totally. And, and yeah. the discussion about bias, biases that you've raised has completely 
oblivious in, in that space. You know, I think we don't think enough about that. And it's actually interesting to see museums commissioning artworks now that actually bring that in, uh, in kind of to the museum. And hopefully that also helps educate the museum staff, not only the visitor, about these right. biases that are inherent in computer vision and, and basically any of this work. So I think that there's a number of points that you obviously brought up there, but I think that human factor, I think that's something that maybe seeing that back end of the AI, the, the human element of that is sometimes maybe overlooked. I think people are becoming more aware about the biases that can be built into the system. So if the promise is, for example, with the surveillance of visitors to understand how they're interacting with you know, the collections or the exhibit in a particular way or whether it's about, you know, another aspect of that visitor experience, like how much um, attention is there and should there be on the fact that there is still a human programming or analysing or thinking about how they're going to use this AI in the first place because there's still, you know, lack of diversity um, in the museums and, and library sector. I mean, it's getting better. People are shining a light on that, but there's still there's lack of diversity. So there's still a certain type of person that is going to be setting up those algorithms in the first place. And if those algorithms are being used to set up surveillance and understand how people are using the collections, how does then that affect the potential process? I mean, I think usually, for the most part, people are using the default training sets provided by the major prov uh, major providers because they're not aware of the biases or ways of creating their own training uh, training data. That's the first first part. So once um, can you get past that? I think the question really for museums is how does it actually provide better information? Can we act on the insights that new insights, given that we haven't acted on the previous ones? You know, I think a lot of the work that my teams do is about doing qualitative uh, visitor research, not more, more quantitative research doesn't necessarily give us the things we need or we can act on. But I think the promise of this is sold to museums as the quantification of experience and that works best because it's at scale and the only way to deal with it at scale is to use magical AI. And so there's sort of three layers of problem there. And at the end of the day, if the museum isn't going to change how it, how it acts on that data, uh, it's, it's a questionable investment, you know. That's not to say that there isn't value in it. It's just that I think we haven't, as a sector, figured out how to, how to make sense of that. Is it actually able to tell you anything that you didn't know before? Like Usually not. I mean, you right. know, in the early days of Wi-Fi tracking, um, you know, I um, was, was involved in a research experiment at the, at the Powerhouse in 2009, very early days of uh, Wi-Fi tracking. And getting data about all of the visitors who had their Wi-Fi switch, switched on moving through a space helped us deploy qualitative researchers better to particular points in that exhibition. Did it change the future layouts of future exhibits? No, because we couldn't find the way to, to extrapolate those results to a future exhibit design. It told us what we knew about the physical design of this particular space, but when the next, next exhibition come, comes in and the space will change, it doesn't help us redesign that, you know? It's not like we're redesigning a house every day we live in it. So, you know, that sort of responsiveness is lost. Have you seen any, like, real kind of benefits from using this technology in museums? <sighs> Look, I think it's, 
if I'm more cynical about it, 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 helps, con it helps convince people who are driven most, mostly by quantitative results. No. It gives you more quantitative results to put on the table. Yeah, it's like a data, big data world. It's a big yeah. data prob <laughs> the, you know, problem. And I think it's, again, that data, data literacy problem. We're not, we're not literate enough to be able to ask the right, right questions. So whatever a tool provides us is used to answer a question we didn't necessarily want to ask. And we weren't necessarily willing to act on the answer of anyway uh, before we quest question the biases inherent in the question. There's so much to unpick from what you said, and maybe a couple of things I'll come back to you um, in a moment. One thing you did say, though, is like looking at, like, I guess, the maturity or the literacy around kind of what AI could do, um, and maybe like the creative sector, so whether it's artists um, or other kind of creative individuals, musicians, uh, maybe have explored the limits of what these AI algorithms or how to incorporate them into a, a creative experience is maybe slightly more mature than, say, other people who are maybe delivering um, experiences in the sector. Um, John, I know that you just went to Ars Electronica. Ars Electronica is a massive uh, media arts festival that's held in Austria every single year, and they celebrated their 40th uh, anniversary of holding this festival. I understand there was a lot of AI-related works and media arts that were involved in the festival. Were there any take-homes, or were, are there any particular interesting works that you saw there as kind of one of the the largest gatherings of people in the world doing media art? Yeah, well, we, that was the topic of our podcast last time, so you could have a listen to that and get the, the full review. But I guess the main thing that really struck me was how AI has become embedded in so many artworks as just a routine thing. It's not necessarily that this is an AI artwork. It just uses AI, but it has a bigger message or a larger picture that it's trying to communicate. And, you know, the Ars Electronica Museum has a whole floor of their museum devoted to AI now. So it's probably, I guess, as far as I know, probably one of the largest exhibitions of state-of-the-art AI in the world. But one of the comments that I made uh, last week when we were recording our podcast was that I'm sure it's going to date very quickly because it's all state-of-the-art today. But we all know that three years ago... Uh, it was a very different situation and in three years' time it'll be a completely different situation as well. So the actual cost of keeping that exhibition current is going to be very challenging for them, I think. That's going to be a, a big problem. But, you know, there's, yeah, there are lots of works that use things like GANs and, uh, you know, certainly Nina and I, I think, have talked about a lot of them. <laughs> we, we have a, an opinion about them that's not very kind because I think part of it is that it's a generic process that the people who use the software didn't write the software it was developed by large companies usually Google and they're basically just downloading the software training it on the particular data set and spitting out some results and to my mind that's not particularly technically innovative or creatively innovative not to say that there aren't people working with that technology who are doing really innovative things but I think that it's kind of like a wow thing like wow you mean a machine can do this and it's exciting for the first few you know 10 instances you see but by the time you get to the 11th it's like well is it that different than the other 10 and by the time you see the 100th or the 200th instance it's like this is this just looks all the same to me at some level 
Yeah, there was some of that, but there was also some, as I said, there was some works that used AI in a much more deeper and meaningful way, looking not just at the technology, but looking at the things like the human labour that's involved in creating AIs, all of the work that's done in annotating data sets. So if you have a large museum collection that you put online and it's got metadata in there, someone has to put that metadata in and that's you know, a huge human labour to do that and a huge human cost and an AI can't do that for you. So yeah, there's, there's some positives but there's also some, I think you know, we'll look back in a couple of years time and kind of go, well, it's crazy that we were so interested in a lot of this, a lot of this stuff because it just seems so, uh, so much just like a kind of blip in terms of the development of it. So do you think the allure of AI currently is kind of, uh, kind of that idea that it's doing something that you can't? Or like, what's, what's the allure right now? Like, is it that science fiction kind of like it's going to be kind of like helping me, my personal robot? Like, why is it so attractive right now other than it's in the zeitgeist and there's money that goes with it? Well, yeah, I think the reason is, it's the reason why AI is attractive because... As a human endeavour, it's certainly up there with some of the greatest things that humans have ever tried to do, right? Like trying to replicate the sophistication of human intelligence is a grand challenge for humanity. But unfortunately, the results fall so far short of what people are actually capable of doing that it's almost laughable. But at the same time, it's also a great... It is a great technical challenge. It's a big engineering challenge to try and understand how the human brain works and how that integrates with the body. But... I mean, we're still so far away from that. We're still probably hundreds of years away from really understanding deeply how the human, how human intelligence really works at, at you know, a fundamental level. So I think the reason is largely it's kind of the cachet that's associated with it to say an AI made this and that somehow gives you a bit of street cred in terms of your... Because you know, if you just said, I used some statistical inference, people would start yawning pretty quickly. But if you say, I'm using a cool AI that's actually intelligently understanding something about what it means to be human, that's suddenly a whole different ballgame, right? So even though the two things are probably pretty much the same at the moment. We've kind of had a little bit, I guess, like a little bit of a critical <laughs> look at where things are right now. And I think it might be quite interesting to look at where things might go in the future, what we feel like the, the potential of AI is in terms of maybe producing different or more interesting or kind of engaging uh, kind of experiences in the cultural sector. And I just wanted to maybe kind of ask Nina, like obviously your PhD work is looking at kind of in the field of creative AI. And I wondered whether maybe you could explain a little bit more about what you're doing and, and how you feel like your work might influence, you know, this sector going forward. Yeah, totally. So I guess I just kind of feel maybe like where like I said before where AI art is at the moment is kind of the hype around like the AI is the artist I mean I guess that's kind of how it seems is like you know it's like generating this output and it seems kind of creative or whatever but it, yeah it really comes down to like the what the human has done behind the scenes to make that interesting and also to create the concept around it and so I guess in the same way to me at this where we're at now AI is basically just another tool like you know photography or anything else painting whatever is a tool to kind of create these works so I feel like you can't just use that concept to be like, this is, this is an artwork because it uses you know, AI. I think just it's more interesting to use it as a tool and still kind of have like a strong concept about something else, right? That's not, it's not just about AI, but something else as well. And then using AI to kind of like further that. I and guess that's what doing I'm doing in my you? work. <laughs> I don't know if I'm really doing that in my work, but basically I'm just looking at a lot of um, generative texts and generative poetry and 
basically just looking at how um, humans interpret, you know, machine-generated poetry. And it's not really about, you know, I'm not trying to say, like, my AI is creating, like, really good poetry or, you know, this is, like, you know, passable as human poetry or anything like that. It's more about, like, how are people um, actually interpreting this poetry that didn't actually have an intention and it wasn't written with any kind of actual meaning, but it's, like, how are they actually interpreting it? What does that say about them and what does that say? It's basically just more about the interaction, the experience, and I'm using AI, I guess, as a tool. But And I feel like in that, this case of, like, what the work that I'm working on at the moment, like, I'm, I guess, an artist, and it's not kind of like I'm trying to make the AI be creative in itself. So I guess, like, it speaks to a lot of the other creative AI work that we do in the lab. That it actually mm. asks them really... By doing this work with, uh, you know, collaborating with these AI systems, it actually holds up a mirror to humanity and asks some really interesting Absolutely, questions yeah. about yeah. ourselves. And that's something, you know, if we, if we are using it in that way, then it could be, I guess, used in a cultural sector to have people reflect on yeah. how they're in- interacting <laughs> with the world. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's a huge amount of possibilities we could still, you know, do with it beyond just kind of like we generated something and this is the, the output. Yeah. I feel like it should move beyond that. And I think it will pretty soon. Like that's the GANs have happened and that's kind of a bit of a phase. But I think, you know, going into the future, it's just going to be another tool that people use. And I'm like, I think it's pretty exciting. John, something that um, Seb mentioned earlier was about collections um, and a kind of I know that Sensi Lab has done some work in terms of maybe trying to find ways to use AI to both kind of show how AI is making decisions, making decisions, or and, and also like in terms of making some collections more accessible. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, was it 2016? The Tate gallery in the UK had a, offered a prize. They'd offered it for a couple of years running. It's called the IK Prize. And the winner of that prize in 2016 was a group from Microsoft who had been looking at the Tate collection and wanted to make it more accessible to people, particularly when often, you know, if you're a visitor to the Tate, that's only a small number of people who might access the website or who are, you know, globally around the world interested in the collection. So they developed a system which somewhat ironically you had to go to the Tate to see, but you went to the Tate and you could look at current news media photos and it would find the closest matching image from the collection for you fairly instantly and show you the features of the photojournalism, for example, that matched you know, classic Renaissance portraits. And it was apparently a big, big hit. People really loved it. Then after that, Google released a program that allowed you to basically take a selfie and find quite a close matching image from a collection. More recently, we, Sensi Lab, <laughs> developed um, a little program that you can download for free called Art or Not, um, run it on your phone. It was came from the idea of one of the main person who developed it, Dilpreet, uh, who is normally in the podcast but not here today, was going to galleries and not sure if what he was seeing was art or not. And he wanted uh, an AI to decide definitively for him if it was art so he could sort of sleep at night. And so this program, uh, it's trained on about 400,000 images, largely from Nina, do you know the collections? It's the Met collection. I can't remember the name. He said it so Met- many times. Metropolitan Museum of Art Collection and Chicago Institute of Modern Art. I, anyway, right. largely American collections because they're the only people who put their entire collections online and make them available. And anyway, you basically point your phone at anything and it will come back and tell you if it's art or not. And it will not just tell you yes or no, it will give you a kind of a rating of that. But more interestingly, what it will do is bring up a whole series of images from the collections that it knows and say, well, your image is kind of like these images in terms of its visual appearance, not necessarily in terms of the content or the topic. So if you 
pointed at a dog, it doesn't necessarily just give you pictures of dogs. And what's really surprising is you can point it at abstract things like clouds or you can make a drawing yourself and you can find things that you think, wow, conceptually that does kind of seem similar, even though it's only looking at the visual features. So I think those kinds of tools, even though they're in their infancy, are actually a really engaging way, particularly you know, if it's accessible by your phone, to get people to explore collections that they would never bother searching you know, because if you, if you go online and you search on a website, you go to a big museum's collection, unless you know what you're searching for, it's very hard to find, you know, something that interests you unless it actually appears on the page for you. Whereas just saying, I'm interested in stuff that looks like this doodle that I drew, and you suddenly start making these connections that you never would have thought just by searching, I think is quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, that really what those uh, things are trying, trying to do is replace text search or the... Or the, yeah. or the or the problems of text search exactly, and, and the lack of knowledge of the body that's being searched. Because the Tate, uh, about five, five years prior to the prize, um, had a marketing experiment called the Magic Tate, Tate Ball that was just an app that did ex pretty much the same kind of thing using uh, the weather and your location. But, but again, because you didn't know why it was showing what it was showing, it still had magic of arriving in a collection at something you didn't expect to find. And I wonder whether it's actually the, the randomised start, starting point that actually is what the person is looking for versus the, the mechanics of how the thing was found. I'm kind of curious about that because also at Cooper Hewitt, when we did the interactive stuff with lo local projects and you were using your pen, this is for the Smithsonian Design Museum, we did a, a there, there was a part of that interactive table which had no no uh, tech, text box for search, you drew a pattern or shape and it would then pull up things from the collection that had that line or shape in it. And the way that had been made was by having an in kind of a turn manually trace about 600 images of the collection and it was just doing a pattern, pattern uh, match. And we didn't have to do the entire collection because you just needed one new start, start point. So. So I'm, I'm kind of curious whether it's qualitatively better for an AI to be doing it or not and whether the biases of the AI, like that um, the app from Sensilab is actually using these two or three American open access collections, yeah. wh whether, that, whether the user is actually aware of that bias mm. and if they were aware of that bias, do they care enough to want to switch that bias to an Australian or another thing. A bit like the um, uh, Singapore, Singapore government did a really interesting experiment that was on kind of line for a while um, that was looking at uh, photo improvements, so color, so, so color, uh, colorization. So they were using computer vision to, uh, ex to explore black and white photos taken in Singapore. And the, color, the, the colorization tools that were currently used it all being trained on American image images and of course the light in Singapore like um, the light here is very very diff uh, diff uh, different so certain colors actually appear like differently in the light but also the colors that Singap Singaporeans wore in the 1920s and 30s were not the same as the colors Americans wore so when you use the color the colorization tool that being trained on American, images, you got the wrong colours for Singaporean images. So they trained 
Singaporean images on Singaporean colour sets from the same uh, period and got some really in interesting results. But it's not until you're actually doing that manually that you became aware that the colorization is different in different cult, cult, uh, cultures and latit latitudes. Is it latitude that affects the light? Uh, no idea. <laughs> latitude or longitude? I keep, anyway, it's one of the, depending on the time of day. Yeah, something like that. Anyway. Does that like, I mean, obviously, yeah, the curation of the data set, that's the human kind of input. I think in the case of this app, like ideally, like as John said, it's in its infancy, but ideally mm. we would have, you know, like all art, all of the art, that's, you know, we had data set with all of the mm. art and then really what the kind of visual similarity search is doing in that case is like picking up on really kind of basic features, which are the colours. I guess that, yeah, that mm. can depend on the way they were photographed. But the colours, the kind of like features the scale of the features and like any it's, it's kind of it's quite like basic in that sense mm -hmm. so i don't think there's that much bias being introduced in that way it really does kind of work in the same way that we see like we see visual similarities between images like it's quite but i think it's just all about the data set yeah i, th I think you're right the, the only thing is that the data set is largely traded on American. It's it's kind of yeah. like you grew up in the United States and went to the Met or Chicago Museum of Art for your whole life and that was your understanding of what art is. Yeah, that, that is problematic, is. for yeah. sure, yeah. But Nina's exactly right. It, the, the actual system itself doesn't carry that bias. It's only the mm. training data that does. Mm. So if, you, if ACME were to release all of its collection yep. and make it available and we trained it on that, it would be able to compare it against all of the works that ACME had. So, mm. you, you know, if you were hoping to get Seb Chan to acquire your work at some stage, you might use this app trained on the ACME collection to see how much like all the other stuff it is. And then you could argue either if it says, no, it's not like that, then... It should be you, in there, it right? It should be in there because yeah, yeah. it's not like all the other stuff that you've got. <laughs> or maybe the other way around, like it's very much like the kind of art that you're... Yeah, yeah. ..is in your collection. See, I wondered to whether... Um yeah, you know, Google Art Project, of course, has that much larger body yeah. of art to yeah. draw on, as well as things that aren't necessarily seen as art that are in there, like street art and other things. Mm. And it'd be interesting. I mean, I wonder whether they would, they or, or you, in a future version, might release a way of switching between training tra training sets and calling out the American art museums wouldn't call kind of that art but the Hong, Hong Kong art museums would, mm -hmm. or the Japanese art museums would, or yeah. uh, the Shanghai Biennale would, or Ars, um, Ars Electronica would, based on, you know, like, like that sort of pulling out the mm -hmm. explicit dif differences between you know, human classification, basically. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely a great yeah. idea. <laughs> it'd be kind of it'd be kind of cool to do. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we should we should give we that should, a go. Well, we kind of did that with the, the other version of the app, like just kind of getting a bunch of different data sets and not just necessarily like artworks, but you know, like other kind of visual, like other images, like decorative images. I yeah, think is yeah. mm. sign and it does because in that application it was more for inspiration. So it was yeah. for someone designing something. How can they get inspired? They're kind of in a stuck in a rut. So you just went around with your phone and started taking pictures of textures or anything you want yeah. and would come up with suggestions, the mm. things that had some visual similarity but were maybe conceptually or semantically quite mm. different and that mm. would sort of lead your train of thought to make these interesting connections between things. So, yeah, it, you, I mean, yeah, it's exactly down to the collection that you train it on. That's, that's the source of bias. That's also the source of inspiration mm -hmm. in how you use the app. So it seems like a lot of what is inspiring and could be potential for the future is around access and inclusion, like so access to collections, inclusion and in the experience, but we obviously have to be quite sensitive or transparent mm. about the potential biases that are going into that. So, you know, there's 
possibly uh, you know, the next wave of AI-related experiences, possibly if they did were more transparent again uh, about the how uh, and the why, then that could you know, still have an interesting experience, but you know, whilst kind of being quite honest about, about yeah. what's kind of going into it. Yeah. I mean, Seb, you said that you get loads of offers of AI-related <laughs> uh, stuff for Acme. Is there any, you know, is, with the renewal coming up, is there anything that you would like to see included or you yeah, can well, talk about? Most of that is products, you know, people wanting to sell us tools for the CCTV cam cameras or other things. But, you know, not really in terms of artworks. I think, you know, I think that we, we did some early in-house experiments with computer vision tools running over uh, moving image collections. So one of the really challenging things about moving image collections is the element of time. So whereas I can more easily search for different paintings or sculpts, sculptures or photographs of you know, a cat and a multicoloured shape and a thing that a human has classified as fear, the emotion of fear perhaps, that's really hard to find in a timeline in a video because the video is made up of, you know, all these things and you know, all these uh, frames, I guess, and a, the time-based uh, element makes discovery challenging. We, we've done some experiments with that, but they've, they've ended up being kind of rudimentary and they've been about that, that challenge of search. Whereas I kind of like Nina's thing is like, I'd love someone to sort of pose to us like a Grammarly, but for poetry, experimental poetry, that's like you can, gram, you know, Grammarly, that ad you see on YouTube all of the time, which is obviously the YouTube methods are not trained very well because I always get that ad before every video I watch. <laughs> Either Grammarly spends a lot of money or... Anyway, whatever, I've digressed. Yeah, I get that too. Yeah, you get that too. I, so I don't what's get any of those. So what's the diff? The diff I don't, I don't use Grammarly. I, I use no, Adblock. I don't use either, right? Yeah, so anyway. Yeah, Adblock. That's the secret, yeah. right? Okay, so... But imagine, you know, you could get grammar recommendations or corrections based on different writing styles, not sort of a, a generic, mm -hmm. you know, proper writing kind of style, and then you mm. could have experimental poets being, you know, trained on experimental poets where grammar doesn't matter at all. And it's actually about the line, I don't even know, the spacing or whatever. It's you a know, great that, idea. It'd be kind of cool, right? Yeah, yeah, And yeah, that's totally. kind of what, what, you know, I think there isn't enough of that. We're sort of in the Kai's the Kai's Power Tools era of, um, of AI. So Kai's Power Tools, for those who were too young, was a Photoshop thing, right, in the early 90s. And you could tell when a graphic, a graphic kind of designer had just, in, just installed a pirated version of that tool because every poster they made looked like that. <laughs> um, so I wonder whether we're in that sort of period. With, we're mm. coming out of that period with GANs. But I do think as those tools are starting to be built, built into all the Adobe products mm -hmm. and all the other, and Office and other things, whether actually what we actually want is the ability to switch modes in those, to actually be explicit about the mode selection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be kind of like, so that's kind of what I'd love to see in a museum context is that sort of idea of being able to switch mode of browsing or curation or almost, brow, you know, 
experience design. Yeah, I'm not quite making sense, but I think you know <laughs> what, I'm, what I mean. Like, yeah. there's something kind of... I feel like it gives it more transparency as well than just yeah, being like, yeah. oh, here's this painting that we, you know, AI drew. Like, it's, that's, that's like the most kind of like mystifying way to like, you know, show some kind of AI artwork, I think. And it really, the point of it is to try and like confuse people or mystify the thing so it sounds so much better than it actually is yeah, and yeah, yeah it's just disappointing i think <laughs> yeah switching perspectives really isn't it yeah like, and then being able to yeah. see the collection or the ex the exhibition or the gallery through different people's eyes and all and it's actually just a different training set or you know well, it's sort of the aggregate eyes that it's actually the the aggregate of all the eyes of a particular type of person who's provided that tra training set so all the american art um art museum curators have created this training set and here's all the art fair curators have provided this set and the auction houses have provided this set which ones do they feel should be the most revealed to you based on your input that that sort of thing to sort of reveal the biases in the definition of art or the definition of aesthetics or other mm. things well, we'll get the team working on that now that you put that out there. Um, I'm going to kind of throw the floor open if anyone has any questions. If you could just wait until the microphone gets to you um, before you ask your question. I'm just going to hand this over to our lovely volunteer. Thanks. Hi, I was just interested in the, the idea when you're talking about you had the AI generating poetry or the AI generating an, generating an artwork and the degree to which, say, not now but in the, the future when... AIs get much more proficient at that and you've got for all artists who are, whether they're poets or musicians or painters that want to get their artwork out there, it's also an economic thing to them for getting out there. The degree to which, I guess, the democratisation of storytelling as far as AI is in the future, whether you've got big corporations that like making lots of money out of all kinds of storytelling and art as far as they've got access to mega data sets that people can't afford to hone their art, hone its popularity or appeal. I guess your, your thoughts on democratisation for your small independent artists, access to AI versus the big corporate world in storytelling and art. Yeah, that's definitely a huge problem. Um, I think, yeah, like the most kind of popular, like it basically at this point or maybe, you know, as of last year or even even still now, it's like if you need to have access to even be an AI artist, you basically need to have access to, you know, huge, really expensive, supercomputer like GPUs and you need all this training time on them and it's just kind of, almost kind of impossible to do this if you were just by, it was like completely independent and it requires a lot of money. Um, so it kind of, it is not super accessible and I think people, like the kind of, you know, you know, software community try to do a lot of like open source things as well. So the neural network that I'm using is the, for the poetry generation is the GPT-2, which actually was pretty much released, not fully, but released like publicly for anybody to use. So that's an example of, I think sometimes they, it is, it does become publicly available. But I mean, yeah, there's still the issue of just training is so expensive. Like the GPT-2 cost, what was it? I think it's about forty thousand US dollars in just in energy costs to do so, the training. Yeah. So not the yeah. computer hardware, just the power that it uses. Yeah. Costed, costed. So they just trained this network, and it can basically like the biggest model can basically produce like coherent paragraphs of text that you would probably think could be a human, basically. 
<laughs> I think, I mean, it's a really interesting question about democratisation and so far it's, you know, there have been positives and negatives. So as Nina mentioned, OpenAI, the company that produced that model, did release it publicly, but not the full model because they were worried about the implications for fake news and that kind of thing. You can actually, you can go onto the, the <laughs> Allen Institute website and this, is, this would be great if you're a, a media or journalism student, go onto this website. There's a, basically a news generator and you can choose the publication like the New York Times or whatever it is, type in the headline for the story and it will generate the entire story for you. If you're a student doing this for your assignment submission, I don't recommend it, but uh, if you're a journalism student, it's, it's really great fun to play with. Just type in any headline, like, you know, Trump declares war on Mars, and it will give you a coherent story as though it was written by someone from the New York Times. And if you change that to, um, you know, Fox and Friends, you'll get a completely different slant, but it'll still be about the same thing. So, you know, there's this kind of pros and cons. We've deviated a little bit from your original question. but so, Yeah, but those tools are becoming increasingly accessible i wouldn't i don't know if i would say well fully accessible the, the, the versions of them like that yeah but it's generate. still you so you know so much owned by the like the yeah. big four you know yeah. the yeah. biggest companies in the world and they're the ones who develop them and they don't also don't release their research a lot of the time yeah. they choose to release their research when they want so it definitely is a huge problem i'm not exactly sure how it's going to affect you know independent artists or what that means for you know people trying to do i don't know like i don't see how those worlds yeah. Uh, you know, intersecting necessarily? Well, it will get built into existing tools. That's, that's what will yeah. happen is, is your digital tools you use now will increasingly come with those, mm. you know, the next version I'm sure of, the, of you know, um, of Ableton Live will have some mm. AI-enhanced you know, yeah. drum machine pattern kind of generator or other things. Yeah, and they already have like, you know... Yeah. Photoshop, not pho I don't know if Photoshop uses it yet, but like things like Photoshop where you can do like GAN, basically create images with GANs, like just using this tool. So I think the, the, the goal is to make it accessible so that like I guess everyone's on the same playing field. But at this point, you know, like I wouldn't be able to do what I have done so far if I didn't have access to a GPU, which, you know, normally I would never have access to a GPU. Like it would take me like, mm. you know, weeks to train it. So it's, it's just kind of like this, this problem, I guess, where. But do you need access to the if you're making a work, do you need to train it on your own data or not? And if you don't, can you use it like a tool yeah. to, to make yeah. part of a work? Or, or if yeah, you're running yeah. a yeah. essay mill uh, generating student essays for pay, then it would make yeah. a lot of sense to digitise all the essays that have been you know, submitted for a subject over for a decade um, and then feed them into a training yeah. module and then monetize that with the students of that course. Right. You yeah. know, that would be, yeah. you know, but that wouldn't necessarily, you, but you could probably do a reasonable job. Yeah, you could do it. It is just, you know, it narrows, like the less money you ideas, have, but, you the know, less yeah. money you have and the less access you have to like institutions and the facilities mm. they have, like the less you can do. But I guess that's true, you know. Of anything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But maybe something, Nina, you didn't expect explain, maybe because you're too modest, uh, was that the poetry that your system generates is very unique and it's driven by the emotion of the person who's looking, yeah, looking at the poem. And so you did use a custom set and I think that that's kind of what makes the work so interesting is yeah. that the curation of that data set was very specific to your interest yeah. in poetry. Yeah. And the poems that it comes up with are very, you know, kind of specifically tailored towards emotional reflection. Yeah. Um, so that 
training process was kind of crucial to making the work to so interesting. Yeah, totally. I mean, originally I had it with just the the plain GPT-2, and I was doing that for a while, and people can do stuff like that with, you know, generation. Basically what it ends up sounding like is, like, the general, you know, online internet speak it, it on Reddit or whatever. It was trained on Reddit. Yeah, right? Reddit. Yeah. So it's just that's really what you have <laughs> to work with. So, I mean, <laughs> thanks, John. <laughs> and how does your tool detect emotion? So I also used a model that was just released. I didn't even train that model, but it was just kind of a really crude, you know, facial expression classification. Mm. And then that uh, kind of reading from the machine um, then kind of seeds the text generation part. So the idea, I guess, is that the poetry generated is meant to kind of reflect in some way or like, you know, expand upon the person who's using its emotion. Mm. But with some more money, you could train an emotion detection set of your own that might be more accurate I mean part of my work is also criticizing (laughs) um, emotion detection Mm. so that's kind of the point as I'm using emotion detection but I'm not trying to classify people into any emotion I'm trying to use poetry and language to actually make it more complex and expand upon it more because I feel like the labeling of people's emotions is, is kind of wrong and using that in a surveillance way is kind of wrong so yeah, problematic, I guess. So it's not necessarily about, you know, how well can I read somebody's emotion, but more about how can this kind of provoke them to, like, emotionally reflect and how can we use poetry to do that? Did anyone else have a question? Uh, thank you very much. So I have a bit of ethical question. So maybe because the way we use the AI system and attitude is important, but also do you think particularly like infrastructure or development AI technology has an ethical implication or assumption? Not just about attitude, human's attitude. So do you mean just the pure use of it has an ethical implication? Well, because I don't really know about development of AI system and the whole infrastructure, how it's constructed. So definitely the way we use the AI, the, the perception attitude, it should be ethical, but also the development AI technology and also like infrastructure, maybe they have a ethical assumption and implication or criteria. So just want to hear about your opinions. So, I mean, I guess most of the models do come from a small group of people. Uh, so that's one area of, that's open to ethical consideration. The other thing that we've already you know, talked about a lot is the training data, where that comes from and if it's, you know, if it's biased, which is something that's obviously very um, much in the media and it's been talked about a lot at the moment. So lots of people are looking into sort of ethical frameworks to ensure that that data has less bias put into it. I guess if you're talking about it in a gallery or museum context, maybe part of it is transparency about how it's working so that if people are actually given a chance to understand more rather than just being told this is a mysterious AI, it's going to tell you the answer or it's going to tell you something. Maybe there's more a need for a greater transparency in how it arrived at that answer so that you can basically ask it back and say, well, if this was different, would you have come to the same conclusion, for example? And also I think that the whole idea that you know, AI, the way AI is being used generally, it feels like it's pushing towards this notion of a highly quantified society and one that we need machines to work at an ever-increasing scale to solve problems at scale. And I think that that chasing of scale is an inherently culturally specific problem right now that we're obsessed with scale 
and we've we're obsessed with quantification and it's very hard to se separate that out from this particular moment in capitalism, that, that, that it's very hard to say, you know, you know the resistance to um, the quantification of culture or the quant quant quantification of life, it feels like most of us have given up on that. You know, that, that I think Nina's, Nina's work pointing out, you know, I think what she's doing with the emotion piece is saying we shouldn't even be quantify, trying to quantify yes. emotions in yep. the first, first place. You know, so, so it's not whether the algorithms are biased or not because they are always going to have mm -hmm. some biases. It's should we be quantifying behaviour in that way in any way? And it, it feels like we've reached a moment in technological almost determinism that we've landed with... The problems of the world are so 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 great right uh, now. We need things that can only deal with things at scale, and we've forgotten that actually all successful change comes from small-scale communities that grow and work together and form solidarity and have net network solidarity. You know that seems to be what's lost in a mechanised view of the world, um, which is con conveniently hidden behind mystique of these machine intelligences so it's not just mystique too i think it's also seductive oh very seductive because that's why it's become so prevalent and so mm. popular it's not because it was thought to be a bad thing or a useless yeah. thing it's actually so useful that it's gained all this traction but the problem is that it's all sort of just filtered up into this area that's just dominated by a few groups of mm. people who can who basically control all the data write a lot of the algorithms and so that amount of power concentrated in such a small area globally mm. has become a huge cultural problem. Mm. But I wonder whether, you know, we don't get access to a lot of AI research coming out of China. It'd be very interesting to see what is actually where the big issues in Chinese AI research, which is now almost at par or may have surpassed American AI research, whether that will actually flip things again. It's kind of interesting to see because, you know, the Chinese government has been bringing in some things around ethics and AI, um, um, of AI at a governmental level, 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 which I'm yet to see anywhere else. So it's kind of interesting to see whether there will be cultural dif differences in that sort of big deterministic model, although... Mm, and in a lot of places in um, the US now are kind of banning facial recognition as well. Mm. I feel like China's obviously for that. But, well, but in China, you can't ban facial recognition. It's That's the difference. <laughs> that's the difference. What I'm saying is, like, in the US, that people are actually saying, like, oh, no, actually, maybe we don't want to kind of have this mass surveillance yep. of our, you know, people. So that's kind of an, like a different kind of, they're taking, like a different culture and they're taking mm, a different yeah. approach to it, yeah. which I think is good. I mean, I don't know if it's actually going to happen in the future. Like, Oh, it's just, yeah. It'd be interesting. I mean, I guess it's that in, that inability to see what, research is actually like it's actually quite hard to see into the private what is now privatized research yeah. um, it's very difficult to see what's happening but it'd be very interesting to to compare the cross-cultural differences here but i think the fundamental motivation for both in the u.s and in china mm. is social engineering totally and you know the one advantage of china is at least they're open about it um whereas in the us it's more it's it's concealed yeah but the basic aim of both is the same it's social engineering yeah mechanized yeah. society yeah. yeah this is always where all of our podcasts end at <laughs> we're just kind of like ah, oh, yeah social engineering facebook and it's, algorithms it's bad it's really depressing <laughs> well 
I think there's been some interesting things, I guess, about like how maybe the cultural sector could be transparent about that, and that might reflect back on wider society, I guess, like if there is that ability within these experiences to see what's going on or how the different data sets are influencing, be something interesting, therefore, in what the cultural sector could do to have people question or at least reflect yeah. back on what is happening, which I mentioned in the beginning, which is largely gone unquestioned. Yeah, I think that it's like a great time for art to be able to actually bring light to that stuff mm. that like industry or whatever, like private companies obviously don't want to. So I think that's actually the most interesting um, application of AI and art right now. All right, and maybe on that uh, we'll end. Um, if you'd like, thank you so much for coming along. And if you'd like to join me in thanking Nina, John and Seb for their time today. Thank you. Thank you.